0: Climbing Gold is a production of duct tape and beer. With support from the North Face, never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration.
1: Hey everyone, Fitz here. Alex has been out climbing because. He's Alex, and I've also been out climbing, which is freaking awesome, and it feels good. Um, Like we promised you, we have one final story this year for you, sort of bonus episode that's actually a lot more than a bonus. It's pretty rad. During our work around the Olympics, we stumbled into this ridiculous story that was too good to pass up on. We discovered that the four Americans who went to Tokyo this last summer, technically, they were not the first Team USA. The story starts in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan is in the midst of a thermonuclear arms race against the USSR, known as Star Wars. In mainstream media, Russians are firmly cast as the villains. Think Red Dawn, Ivan Drago against Rocky. In sports, the 1980 Miracle on Ice was still front and center. In the 80s Summer Games in Moscow, the USA boycotted them. In mainstream culture, the idea of like visiting the Soviet Union would seem almost strange, but at that time climbing was decidedly not mainstream. Today, Alex and I talk with Beth Wald and Russ Klum. In 1986, four climbers, Beth, Russ, Dan Michael, and the legendary Todd Skinner, crossed over the Iron Curtain to go compete in a -a one-of-a-kind speed climbing competition. The story starts in 1983 in Waco Tanks, Texas. Let's dive in.
0: You know, basically, we saw somewhere that, that your 1986 Soviet speed climbing competition might be one of the first sort of international competitions. We just want to hear hear the story.
2: I couldn't get anybody in Minnesota to believe me that there was climbing in El Paso in the winter. So, and nobody was willing to take their Christmas vacation and risk something that was unknown. So, I took a Greyhound down and met Todd. This was, I think, in 1983. Um, who I didn't know very well. I mean, I just climbed with him at the tower a little bit, and I met Todd um, in Waco, and it turned out to be, you know, amazing. Um, and then Russ showed up that that same season, that same winter, or that same period while I was there. And they were, I think, you know, I was like I said, I was just starting to climb and travel a little bit, but you know, Todd had all these dreams, and Russ had already traveled all over the world climbing, and of course, I was super inspired. And I think maybe even I brought up Russia because I was studying Russian. <laughs>
3: In our time of hanging around Waco, we talked about places to visit. We always thought, my God, the USSR, Russia, it's huge. There's got to be some good rock climbing there. And uh, so Beth, who actually spoke and wrote some Russian, uh, she started to investigate for us and quickly found out there is no bloody way that we are going to be able to go to Russia and go rock climbing. It's just not going to happen, especially the way we'd want to do it, which would be like, yeah, let's get a car, and just go explore. Ain't happening.
2: Back in college, I think I, I just started digging into, and you know, there's no internet, there's nothing, so I just started asking questions and doing reading, and I probably I looked at, I probably looked at old climbing magazines. I can't even remember exactly how I came across it, but it was like climbing in Russia was very organized, like everything sport-wise was very organized. It was federized, you know, there were federations and there were clubs and you, it was very, very difficult to climb outside of like organized sports because uh, that's just the way life, life worked there. You know, everything was um, pretty regimented. You know, I realized that the only way to go to Russia to climb was to go to an official event and I found out about these speed climbing competitions and it was going to be held in 1984, but this was like already you know, winter, probably 1984. So that was off. So the next option was 1986.
3: And we thought, well, what the hell? That's better than nothing. It'd be kind of interesting to go over there and see what they got. Uh, so the, the big challenge to begin with was uh, figuring out how to go about this. And we certainly found it found very quickly that there's no way that we can go without having an official recommendation from our American Alpine Club or sanctioned that we are the official American rock climbing, speed climbing competition uh, team. And uh, what do we know about speed climbing? Nothing.
2: But Russ, you know, being he knew some of the people at the club. And there was a guy named Jim McCarthy, who was a president, was a friend of his.
3: I told him our plan and he went to bat for us. And uh, which wasn't the easiest thing. There were a lot of people on the board of directors that were not psyched about the idea of, of a U.S. team going to the Russian Russian uh, competition and probably getting crushed, you know, just showing how weak we were compared to the Russians. There was still some Cold War mentality at the time.
2: Most of the AAC was um, against competitive climbing. You know, this was the era where even bolting, you know, sport climbing was a huge controversy. Um, you know, kind of the Yosemite free climbing um, ideal and the freedom of the hill, you know, that was all like the, the ethics that American climbing, you know, had, had stood for for years.
3: Uh, but Jim managed to uh, convince them that this would be a good thing. So we, uh, we got permission. So we sent our letter uh, from the American Alpine Club to the Russian Federation, And uh, they said, well, okay, you know, yeah, you guys are invited now.
2: Outside of the Soviet Union and outside of that competition, we couldn't say we were the U.S. team. We couldn't claim being an official team. We couldn't really talk about it to the press, and we couldn't wear uniforms.
1: (laughs) But they did have uniforms, and they are dope. Check out Climbing Gold on Instagram for the photos. (laughs) They're pretty sweet. So they had an official, unofficial team. Todd was the larger-than-life, hyper-positive, energizer bunny of the team. He was a cowboy from Wyoming, always looking for the next adventure. Russ, the strong man from the Gunks, pushing the boundaries of physical limits alongside the likes of Lynn Hill and Alan Watts. And Beth, keen for adventure, incredibly creative and strong, and she had just enough Russian language skills to get the team by. Rounding out the group was Dan, the underspoken, quiet strength, who was deemed team coach. In the pre-internet Cold War era, getting to Russia was no easy feat. Visas had to be secured via snail mail, flights had to be booked with long-distance phone calls and travel agents, train tickets booked in other languages. No Google Translate. They chose to go to Czechoslovakia and East Germany first, where they were friends with the East German climber Bert Arnold, and then catch a train to Moscow, where they would be met by their Soviet handler. From there, they'd head to the competition alongside the other national teams. The competition would take place in Yalta, a Russian vacation destination on the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea. Russ applied for the team visas with the Russian embassy in D.C., and in the meantime, Todd left early to go to Germany, where he planned to climb ahead
3: of the trip. I was uh, getting in touch with uh, a woman down in Washington, D.C. at the Russian embassy, and uh, every time I called her up, you should be getting them soon, Mr. Clinton, no problem, the visas are in their way, but we never had them. And then I got a phone call one morning in uh, early September from Skinner. And it was, uh, you know, Skinner making a phone call. A pay, you know, you got to pay for phones at the time. It means he has a bunch of change in his hand, plugging it into a machine in, uh, in West Germany. And he said, well, you know, check this out. The Russians have just changed the competition dates. Now it's happening two weeks earlier, which at that time meant in about 10 days we had to be there. And uh, I said, well, Todd, I don't have the visas yet. He said, well, don't worry about it. I mean, hopefully it'll happen. But anyway, we're leaving for East Germany tomorrow and we're going to climb in with Bern Arnold. So, you know, try and let us know what happens. I was like, I said, this this thing's gone. There's no way it's going to happen now. But just as, as I was uh, that morning after I hung up with, uh, with uh, Todd, I called up the Russian embassy again and they said, well, you know, still no news, but literally like five minutes after that, a FedEx truck arrives at my house and they have the visas.
1: Russ Beth and Dan launched themselves into the unknown and made their way to Europe, where they met up with Todd and caught a train in Moscow, entirely unsure of what awaited them.
2: I think it was early in the morning after like taking the train all night to Moscow, and we were like we weren 't even sure anybody was going to be there, you know, and we had no idea if nobody was there what we would do. We had maybe like a hundred dollars <laughs> in our pockets, <laughs> no phone numbers. Plus, you know, there's there's no way to communicate, um, and so I remember Todd got off the train and was just like, hey, here we're here, we're the Americans, <laughs> and luckily, there was this beautiful young woman named Nina who was there, like, oh, we, to meet us, and she came running over, and we were like, wow, someone is here to meet. And she she was so surprised. She said, we thought it was a joke that you guys were coming on the train. Why would the American team come on the train?
1: (laughs) Nina, as it turned out, would be the group's state-sanctioned translator for the trip and shepherd them around the country to the competition.
2: She wasn't like a really our watcher, I think. They they probably had, we figured there was somebody else that had been assigned to like watch us. You know, everybody who was from the West was kind of, Minded to some degree, um, but she was lovely and and f- and fun and not um, horrified by all of our antics. and um, and we were really happy when we saw her at the train station. Moscow was, I remember it being really gray and cold and dreary, and we were in one of those great, big, like block-like hotels it was like the soviet sports hotel for all foreign sports teams that come and yeah very soviet
3: moscow was basically a lot of concrete uh and uh, i'm sure it's very different now it felt like a black and white movie you know just uh it just it was just waiting for disney to come in and add some color to it
0: when you finish telling the story of of your speed climbing event in the USSR, I have to tell you my uh, my speed climbing competition in Russia as well because it's uh, eerily similar, even though it's thirty years later. Did it's, you do uh, that?
3: When did you? You, I didn't know you did that. It's,
0: it's so similar. It's the same. Uh, you know, my flights were a debacle. I showed up a day late. The belaying was insane. We didn't know what was going on. It was it was all exactly the same kind of thing. <laughs>
1: The seven or eight international teams, they were shuttled to the sunny limestone sea cliffs of Yalta where the competition would be held. For the Americans, it was like mostly an experience, but for the other teams, especially the Soviet teams, the stakes for this competition were super high. It was really important to them. And in some cases, it was almost a chance for a better life
2: it was a really big deal you know for these guys and it's like the culmination for them they the russian team had gone through and i think probably all the other teams had all these other um, qualifying events that they had to go to beca- to become they, they they weren't like us just saying oh we're going to be the polish team you know or we're going to be the russian team they had to qualify and, and be you know to become the, uh, to go to the to go to the competition you know to be on that team um, they climbed, they didn't have climb, climbing shoes, and even though they were, you know, su- they're supported by, you know, this Soviet, you know, it's a, once you're on a team, you know, you get some support from the government, but it was very really hard for climbers to get um, climbing shoes from the West, so they had just, like rubbers, like rubbers you would wear over a, over a shoe, like a fancy shoe that they got really small, and then they would tie them to their feet and rub, rub um, rosin on them to make them a little bit sticky.
3: They had an interview process uh, at the start of the competition for everybody. And when it came time for the Americans, we all went up and, you know, the TV cameras are running and we're like, yes, I'm Russ Cleveland. I'm from New York. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And when Skinner got up there, it was, it was such a made for TV moment. It was like the guy, the guy's asking, uh, you know, so, so Todd, where are you from? And Todd's like, I am from Wyoming. like, So Todd, where is Wyoming? Wyoming is in the West. And Todd, what do you do in Wyoming? I am a cowboy. And oh, God, the crowd just went nuts. It was... (laughs) It it was so... I mean, the cheers went up. No one's going to rival that. It was pretty damn good.
2: Well, it was held on these, you know, it was, it, it was held on real rock, like big cliffs, um, not in a gym. <laughs> and there was two parts to it. Um, well, kind of three parts. There was a shorter speed climb, a longer speed climb. And then there was for the men, one team, one rope team of men was a lead climb. A speed lead climb of i think it was about four pitches but they were short pitches it was
3: a wacky event overall it went on for i think it was about four or five days in total the layers were like two big fat dudes with like leather gloves hauling in rope hand over hand and they lowered you the same damn way like like, like
0: they, they were just running into the woods holding onto the rope
3: no there were, there were two of them so like one was pulling in the other guy was like the backup it was That's and when they funny. lowered demand, it was it was a heart stopping lower. You were going like at the speed of light until the last three feet and and each morning, uh, we would be told what today's climb was going to be and what the rules were. And and Nina, our translator, would be explaining the rules and we were we'd have a thousand questions like, Oh, wait a second, there's a boundary line on it. Does that mean you can not can you break the plane of that with a limb and not touch a hold or do you have to touch a hold you know just it was you know one one clarification after another and to the point we're like i don't really know what the hell the rules are but let's just try and stay inside the boundary and uh yeah, it, it, it was, uh, but yeah, it was, I mean, every morning, it was, you could just imagine a chatter in this kind of cafeteria style room with, you know, the Germans being, you have the German translator, you have the Japanese translator. You've, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a, just a cacophony of noise. And in the end, I don't think anybody but the Russians actually knew what the hell was going on.
0: Yeah, that's, that's why they're hosting the comp. They're like, they're like, it's weird that we win every year and nobody else understands what's going on.
3: Uh, I will say, though, they, they were fast. Those guys, uh, uh, no one is going to blitz them. That's for sure. I mean, it bears no resemblance to what uh, what what speed climbing has morphed into at this point, uh, for sure. I, mean, I guess the one thing that was kind of cool is at least we were climbing real rock and the... Uh, and the routes weren't that easy. I, I remember that short, that short uh, top rope was you know in the five eleven range, and longer one was in the five ten range. Uh, and the multi pitch, I couldn't even tell you. It was like just go as fast as you can and pull whatever you want. It was just like you know go. But it was uh, it was definitely nothing like having uh, what 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 the modern speed climbing comp has turned into for sure.
0: Yeah. Why is speed climbing such a thing in the Eastern block?
3: if I, I think I think and this goes back to the idea of uh, alpinism and speed is safe so if you go fast you're being safe and it had that competition for I don't even know how long it had mostly been about uh, with you know, it was Eastern European countries so I think the whole idea was like speed is safety so therefore you should be able to climb safe safely if you go fast enough uh, even though it, it seemed just just as reckless as possibly be. But, but, uh, I think that was the, uh, I think that was really what the impetus was, you know, speed is safety.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the multi-pitch competition that, that, that I was at, the, uh, the way they started and stopped the timers were very specific for, you know, when the second person gets to the ground or whatever. Basically the person cleaning the pitch didn't have to actually hold on to the gear because that wasn't really part of the competition. So when they cleaned, all they did was just drop the gear to the ground it was totally insane so they're they're multi-pitch climbing but you know in the in the interest of speed the second would just drop the hardware and it would all just like land in a pile on the ground you know strewn around the base and then uh, and then same with pulling the rappel ropes i think they ended the timer when the rope got down and so when the second person finished rappelling they just sprinted into the forest as fast as they could with one end of the rope like instead of pulling the rope like normal they just ran away <laughs> and, and you know, I, I was there with my friend, Chris and The two of us are watching it like, what? You know, because none of the, it, it was so particular to the style of the competition. It's like things that you would never do in real life because they make no sense. But, you know, to win a competition, I guess it works. It was so crazy. It,
3: it was, it was definitely the nuttiest thing. In the evenings, we, you know, we were staying in this kind of grim little, like, Hostile thing, but there was just you know there, we're we're in the Black Sea, you know we're, we're we're in the Crimea, so it's a it's a big tourist destination. Well, you know, tourists being basically Russians from Moscow.
2: The Germans were real, rapscallions, scallions. Like um, Norbert Sandner, he was like he was like the coach of the team, but he was, he was an old friend. I think Russ knew him from before, and we had met him in Germany before we'd come over, and he was just fun loving. Great guy, and he was always trying to get everybody, all the teams, together to go do things, you know, which was not necessarily part of the official itinerary. And so he got us all in. He convinced the the authorities, the kind of our minders, to let us. He's like, oh yeah, last year or two years ago when we came, we we all got together last night. We went to this this um, disco this hotel that has a dance place and they let us go. And like, so we'd really like to do it again. So they let us go. Is, and then he was like, oh, never got to do that last time. <laughs> so
3: so we, on the top floor of this hotel, they had this, uh, this bar and dance club. So we'd go up there in the evenings and kind of hang out. And our translator, Nina was just like, she'd, she'd watch us and try try and calm us down along with Beth. And like, but one night we just had one or two too many beers, maybe three or four too many beers. and. Uh, we got onto a dance floor, pretty much we, I, I don't know why it started, we started slam dancing with, with uh, ourselves, which made us bump into paying customers at the hotel until finally a bouncer said, okay, you guys. N- Nina, Nina said, um, we have to leave now. There's no, no, we can't stay. We have must leave now.
2: It ended up, we ended up getting thrown out. Um, I think we just got a little too raucous. And Nina was pretty horrified by some of that, but she was a good sport.
3: So we, we just got tossed, which was fine. But then, but even funnier, so I'm, we're with the West Germans. We're, now we're down in the lobby, and Norbert Sander, one of the West Germans, there's a whole group of tourists coming in off a bus, and Norbert tries to grab a key to one of the rooms in the hotel to stay there. Then at that point, somebody from security bounces from the hotel for good. We weren't allowed back in at all.
0: That's how you make a good impression uh, you know, on the Eastern <laughs> Block. You're like, ah, oh, Americans. <laughs> Did you guys win? I mean, like, how did you
1: guys do? We
2: got, we actually amazingly got third as a team. Um, And I think we might have even gotten second if I hadn't fallen on one of the routes um, that I did. So I got disqualified from one one of the events. So yeah, which was like, we were just shocked.
3: We did pretty well. I think Beth had, she didn't have a team route, but she had to do two of those top ropes. And on one of them, for some reason, uh, she was disqualified. I can't remember why. Uh, but you know they had all kinds of rules about boundaries, whatever. but if uh, if she had not fallen on that route, we would have come in second behind the Soviets, which is crazy. as it was, we came in third, but that was uh you know, it was it was good enough but it, it, where we were, where we ended up was beside the point. It was just uh, seeing that whole scene and and being part of it was uh, was just nuts.
1: My impression of of the Eastern Bloc is just sort of of grayness. You know, Mm -hmm. and and what I actually hear you say is that, you know, maybe you kind of expected that or like, you know, first glimpse, that's what Moscow was like. But inside of it all, there was a deep vibrancy.
2: Yeah. And there was a hunger. You know, we did we did think, you know, East Germany seemed sad and depressed. I I think it seemed because we had been in West Germany. um, It seemed it did seem grayer, but not when we were with are the climbers like um, Bernd Arnold, who is this amazing East German climber, you know, just who really developed the sport there. Just um, insanely good climber. Um, And he's the one who showed us around. And he, you know, he and his friends um, had found ways to express themselves and to, you know, find life, you know, joy in life and and ways to... um, Push themselves, and pr- lots of that was, you know, I think one of the reasons, like, the mountaineers that came from that part of the world were so extreme and so incredibly, you know, they pushed themselves really hard, and it was the same for climbers. You know, that was their outlet, you know, was climbing. And if you got good enough, you could, and you got recognized, you could maybe get a chance to travel a little bit, like Bernd had been able to go to West Germany and had climbed a little bit outside of East Germany. So even though it was, there was some of that, um, I don't know, dreariness or just sort of a, you know, a bit of a de- more depressed, not as vibrant feeling. Um, Mar- I, I remember that more so in East Germany than, I, than in Czechoslovakia or Poland. Um, within the realm uh, and within the homes of these people, it was like a totally different thing. You know, when we were out on the cliff, you know, it was a totally different thing.
3: I am really, really happy I made uh, trips to the Eastern Bloc uh, prior To the fall of the wall. The thing was, of course, Westerners were a rarity. Uh, And what you did discover though is when you got inside the beehive of climbers, when you got into the brother and sisterhood of other climbers, it was no different from being anywhere else. You know, everybody was psyched about roots, psyched you're a climber, psyched you're visiting. And uh, frankly, when you came from the States to those places, you were treated like royalty because they were so unusual to go there. So, um, so you were sitting there. It it was this really interesting kind of separation of two worlds because you had the world of the Eastern Bloc and, uh, and kind of the grimness of that on, on so many different fronts. It's not just that you have a government that's oppressive and you have to kind of watch what you say, but even what you were able to, you know, purchase or you know what you were able to buy what what was available for consumer goods where you had to live the, the restrictions it was just you know it was so oppressive compared to what you had in the west but when you got away from that and you got into the little this little ball of, of of clamor union it was just like being anywhere else everybody's just psyched so you have the same love you have the same passions you have the same desires to do these things and i found that I found that so rewarding, and uh, it was just a great experience to have those those things happen. Especially, it just it, when you compared it to what their everyday life was like.
2: If you're a climber, you have um you have a built-in community when you go to foreign places. So you have like people you can connect with on so many levels immediately, and so you're already kind of not a tourist. You know, you're, I mean, I, you're kind of already kind of part of the part of the club. And so you get to see things and have experiences with people. At least this was my impression, you know, knowing what I knew, like the little bit I knew of, you know, of international tourism. Like it was different, you know, it wasn't, we didn't feel like tourists. You know, we felt like we were kind of there on a mission. And we knew other, we met other people in those countries who were on, the, had the same mission and we had these instant connections and kind of deep experiences with them, you know. And that was really amazing. And it was really amazing to have that across these what would seem to be chasms of, of, politics and culture, you know, just putting a, a bit of you know of humanity on these countries that you just you know barely had heard about, or if you had heard about them, they were kind of under in these scary contexts, um, you know. I think it set the stage for trips we did. I a trip I did with Todd to Vietnam at another time, and then, other trips that I did, I went back to. Um, The Soviet Union in 1989 and yeah it was really it it definitely set the stage I would say for lots of things I did in the in the future climbing and and outside of climbing you know who are just exploring the world kind of first through climbing and then eventually morphed through my camera and photography and storytelling.
1: Todd would go on to become one of his generation's most famous and talented athletes. Tragically, he died rappelling off a climb in Yosemite in 2006. Russ now helps manage the Shawan Gunk Preserve, better known as the Land and Access Managers to the Gunks. You can find him climbing there on an almost daily basis. Beth would go on to become a world-renowned National Geographic photojournalist, shooting dozens of stories around the world. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This bonus episode was written and edited by Andrew Burton. Additional editing by Cordelia Zars. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and Cordelia Zars. Alex Honnold is our host. Our executive producers, Rebecca Call and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Ben Endy and Jonathan Retzek for RxR Sports. I'm Fitz Thanks for listening.